Welcome to episode 163 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony. And this is the podcast of Brotherly Love. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. This is the podcast of Brotherly Love. It is. I've, I've made it kind of a new sport to try to think of uh, on the fly. I suppose they're not really on the fly if I'm thinking ahead of time. But to think of new catchphrases and like taglines for our show every week. So I'm I like sure this. that I will run uh, run up dry pretty fast, like probably next week. But uh, <laughs> But we'll see how far I can go with like new brother pun related podcasts. Tag You've lines. already had a good run. I mean, we've got the classic honor everyone, love the brotherhood. Yeah. That's really the centerpiece of our catchphrases. But the catchphrase is underrated on our show because we really haven't had opportunity to really exert our cliche muscles. It's true. It's true. I'm trying yeah, to think of something but, funny to say about cliches yeah, see, and muscles, and we, I got we just, nothing. We, we've got all this atrophy. We haven't been practiced. We need to bulk up. We need to pump up. We need to get up, get with it. It's true. <laughs> even the yeah, I was I was even running out of like exercise and muscle yeah. puns and cliches. Yeah. That's how poor this is. Now you're this very, is podcasting at its best. Yeah, you're like a very a very physically fit person, but you're definitely not a bodybuilder. So the fact that you even came up with that many like weightlifting metaphors, I'm actually really yeah. impressed. I, I appreciate you saying that, but that's that's 100% the truth. Like, nobody looks at me and is like, man, you are really ripped. That's not a conversation <laughs> I ever have. We're going to get a new logo, and it's going to be like you with a six-pack and big, like, burly arms. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> wait, wait a second. Is this logo me shirtless? Yes. I would love someone to draw, to make a Reformed Brotherhood logo that has Jesse as, like, Dwayne Johnson, except with Jesse's head. So uh, if you could do that for me, that would be epic. That's incredible. Somebody will do this because we got so many loving brothers and sisters, and it will be among the most awkward things you've ever seen. I certainly hope it will. Speaking of things that are less awkward but might not be, what are you affirming this week? So have you ever had the experience where uh, – let me ask this question. <laughs> I'm already, I have no idea where this is going. I'm already laughing. When you listen to a podcast and they stop okay. producing episodes – are yes. you the kind of person that unsubscribes from the podcast or do you leave it in your feed? Ah, oh, that's such a good question. This has happened recently and it's still in there. Okay. So I usually le like take it out of my feed because, uh, when you update, like when you run your update, it, it actually has to check those feeds. So it's data being used, blah, blah, blah. There's technical reasons. I didn't even know. But one of the podcasts that I didn't take out of my feed and I'm not a hundred percent sure why, uh, is the Heidelcast with R, uh, R. Scott Clark. Oh, yes. And the Heidelcast dropped a new episode this week. Like a real, like earlier in the week, they started dropping these like one minute video clips. And I was like, oh, this is nice. He's just throwing some stuff out there. Somebody put some stuff together. And then he dropped like a 48 minute episode just eviscerating the, the Federal Vision. And I was like, R. Scott Clark is back. So I'm affirming, one, that the Heidelcast is back. And two... I'm just affirming the Heidelcast because although I have some disagreements with how um, alarmist and frantic uh, R. Scott Clark can be about the Federal Vision, I understand why he is. And I think 
all things being equal, I would rather someone be alarmist about the federal vision than just like totally laissez-faire about it. Like most, right. uh, most people in the reformed world are, uh, even that said, I'm just excited to have the idol cast back. And even if it's just this one episode, it was a totally worth like the 11 month wait to get one more episode. So even if he's on like an annual publishing schedule, I'm excited about it. Man, 11 month wait. That actually makes me feel way more productive. Like I feel better about my <laughs> life now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's like super productive. He's just got a bunch of like a million other things going on. So check it out. Uh, heidelblog.net you can subscribe to the podcast there you can find it on itunes or anywhere else the podcasts are found uh it's really good and he's he does he tends to do like more in-depth long-term series um which is great because he's a you know he's a seminary professor he's a historian he's a pastor so although i think sometimes his perspectives can be a little bit slanted um based on kind of what he's addressing and what he's confronting overall i think he's a reliable trustworthy commentator that we should all really really give good consideration to and he's crazy knowledgeable and super thorough his treatment of all those topics is really on point you know you're going to get a really solid view at something and he has a market in all heidel related media It's true. And also he has like the best radio voice ever. Yes. So he's, I I don't know if he like actually trained as a radio broadcaster, but he certainly sounds like a radio broadcaster. When I saw a picture of him for the first time, I was like, stop it. That voice is not coming out of that face. It's true. And also little known fact, he is like you and I, a lover of Scottish Terriers. Although he, uh, he has the dreaded Scotty. Uh, rather than Westies, but he did, after talking to him on Twitter one time, he did comment that he loves Westies. So I think I can give him a pass on the Scotties. What is his Scottish Terrier's name? Do we know that? I don't know, but there's all sorts of pictures floating around out there of him with Scottish Terriers, with Scotties on his lap. So <laughs> I'm picturing him. He's Here's this serious theologian, all this pedagogical background experience and it's like pictures of him on the internet just covered in scotties Scotties, yeah everywhere they're always on his lap too he just loves his dog so i can't fault (laughs) him for that yes what about you what are you affirming well something far less spiritual as is the norm apparently on our podcast (laughs) i'm affirming the the gift of safety especially this thing called road id i don't know if i've talked about this before on this podcast but Uh, You know, like you mentioned, I do try to do a little bit of running around, like actual outside. And in the course of doing that, I realized a couple of years ago, just it's so important to carry some kind of identification on your person. And especially because I have a couple of health issue things going on. And it would be super helpful if I was just like passed out on the side of the road for somebody to know some things about me if they came upon me and needed to call an ambulance or anybody for that matter. So I'm affirming this particular website called roadid.com. And you can go out there and purchase all these different little, I mean, they're identifications that you can carry on your person while you're either out exercising or just like in life generally. Like if you have kids, this is a great thing for you to have with your child wear like a little silicone bracelet that has like some identifying information on there. So like they have dog tags, they have things for your pet, they have things that fit around your smartwatch for if you're an Apple watch person or if you're a Garmin person. It's just a great way for you to identify yourself when you're out and about in case anything were to ever happen. So my father actually wears this. He has a condition and his medical, some of his medical information is on there. But this is just beyond that. Even if you don't have anything that's a medical condition, this is just a great way to put like the emergency contact information of a loved one. Because this is one of those things where like you never know if you're out like 
biking somewhere, even just walking, you know, like something could happen to you. You could get hit incidentally by a car or accidentally by a car and, you know, just be knocked out. And for somebody to come upon you and be able to call a loved one and have some information about you is amazing. So roadid.com, there's all kinds of options out there. And I was, I just need to replace my road ID actually, because they're fantastic. And I thought, man, everybody should really, everybody should have one of these. Yeah. The alternative would be to have your medical history and emergency contact information like tattooed on your rib cage. So <laughs> is, is that the alternative? Well, it's, it's an alternative. <laughs> Do you know that le- legally paramedics cannot use a tattoo? Do not resuscitate. Really? Yep. So they, they actually had to like medical ethics wise, they had to like run that through the whole process because they can't be sure that it's current. Like there's no, uh, like it's, it's much more likely to have been something someone did and then changed their mind than like an actual paper document. They're right. not actually, I mean, unless it's changed, they're not actually allowed to use a tattooed DNR. Wow. So, yeah. That's wild. I thought you were going to say like, they can't be sure that that person actually wanted the tattoo, like somebody else had a tattooed or like, what if it says like, do not resuscitate, but then it's like lined out in tattoo as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's like crossed Super out. confusing. Yeah. yeah. Super, <laughs> super, the way you said that though, because I know you work in the healthcare industry and because this is what top 50 healthcare podcasts, I thought actually the way that with the, the urgency and the confidence you said that I thought that was like a thing. Like, you know what the legitimate alternative is? Get tattooed on your rib cage. You put that in your wrist. It's not legit. But anything on the rib cage, <laughs> that is absolutely the sign to the paramedic. This is These are my instructions. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could tattoo it somewhere else. But, like, the one place that the paramedics are probably going to see and they find you is, like, on your chest or your rib cage. Because they got to, like, right. check your heart rate and stuff. Like they're so gonna here's the question. The, so let's, the stethoscope. Let's, Let's pair this. That's a good call. Let's pair this with my recommendation. So on, if you go to Road ID, they got all kinds of options. A lot of them are like wrist-based. You can get something for like to tag onto your shoe. You can get something for around your neck. Um, you can get something for like around your ankle. Where's the best place to put this information? I would actually say the wrist if you're not going to get it tattooed on your rib cage. Because they're going to check. <laughs> they, they're, if they find you unconscious on the side of the road, they're going to check your pulse, right? Yeah, I guess so. I, yeah, I was so they curious. would check your know, pulse, like, probably your left wrist, because usually they want to take your pulse in your left hand, because that's where it'll be there strongest. There you go. See, look at this. You heard it here first on the Reform Brotherhood. Somehow we actually did manage to turn this into a podcast about some meaningful information about healthcare. Yeah. Someone in our audience is a paramedic, <laughs> I'm sure. And they're probably like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. None of that makes any sense. <laughs> Somebody needs to tell us. A paramedic out there, please give us some more information. Yes. Really what you should do is you should buy a road ID for your neck, your arm, your foot, your <laughs> shoe, and your ankle, and also get it tattooed everywhere, including your forehead. Well, just they to even be sure. Have this, they have this option on Road ID where you can get like their standard, which is just it's it's you know like either a small bracelet with kind of like a metal clasp that has all this information, or the traditional dog tags, and you can just put you know like whatever you want on there, your name, where you're from, your contact information. But they also have a service where it'll put a specific serial number and then the paramedic or anybody can take that serial number, punch it into their website and it will pull up like your full medical history. That's so it's it. pretty wild. That's exactly what I want the paramedics to be doing is to like <laughs> be pulling out their phone and trying to find the website. Hey, can you throw this in your phone real quick? Mine's dead. I don't have a good charger. 
I mean, I'm not sure how any of this works, but it is a good way to make sure that if you were ever in some kind of horrible position that your loved ones would be notified right away. I do like that. Yeah. It's great. I was going to suggest that we start microchipping everybody. And then I realized that like the seven dispensationalists that listen to our podcast would be <laughs> greatly alarmed. Oh, uh, that's true. Just on so, the, the right hand or the forehead, though. Yeah. It, yeah. Only one of those two places. Yeah. Yeah, but now I'm really, I'm really look. I, after we're done with this, I'm gonna look into what are my options for rib cage tattooing of my medical information. Let's get rib ta- rib cage tattoos at the beach this year. Matching. I was actually just thinking about that because this is all coming together now. It's entirely we're in the full circle, the rotary, if you will, of ideas. <laughs> in that, only some people will get that joke um, because we just talked about uh, for whatever reason me being shirtless can you imagine like being at the beach like you're tanning and your medical information is just out there chilling yeah on cage for everybody to see would that be a HIPAA violation I suppose it's your own medical <laughs> in- information if you're disclosing it I mean I'm sure you could get like a tattoo of your own signature underneath that's true know. that's probably not yeah. great someone would snap a picture with their phone and then that's a whole new level of identity theft that is a whole new level. We have we have so gone off the rails at this point. So let's bring it back around to some denials. <laughs> what so, are you denying? So I know that we try to avoid the reformed weather cast, but this is a particular kind of weather denial. Just lean into it. So it, it, you probably have experienced this, although it seems like it's worse in the most recent couple of years. I'm denying alarmist weather forecasting. So uh, I'm with you on this. Last week, uh, maybe like... I don't know, it was maybe like Thursday or Friday. And, and I work in a medical practice. So like people hear a hint of that there's going to be like a little bit of rain and they start calling and canceling their appointments. So if if the weather's actually going to be bad, we don't want people driving. But when the, when the forecast is like, all right, everybody, stay home or you might die because there's going to be 28 feet of snow and also fire from the sky. Um, and then it's like <laughs> a little bit of rain and maybe like a little bit of wind. That's frustrating. So like right. today, uh, today is Sunday and we normally have, um, adult Bible study on certain Sundays of the month. And because of the weather forecast, we decided as a leadership team in the church that for safety reasons, we would cancel our adult Bible study class, which again, if it's going to be bad out and it's going to be dangerous, we don't want people driving, but there's like a good chance that it's going to turn out to be almost nothing. And it's frustrating because had the weather forecast just been accurate, we probably would not have canceled. But now that I'm actually looking at the weather, it's probably not going to be as bad as they said, which means we canceled Bible study for nothing. Yeah, this is, I think we may have mentioned this before. And everybody yeah. has, I think at one point or another time, thought about the fact that they probably in their own sphere of influence and their own line of work can't get away with the kind of leeway that weathercasters have. And I understand like they're using predictive models just like anybody else, but it's always the kind of thing where, you know, if you're just like, there, there's no, you can't really have good accountability. Cause you're like, you told me it's like a 75% chance of like blizzard conditions and it ended up being a little bit of rain. They'll just be like, well, yeah, it's the weather, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I get it. Like the, the amount of data that's required to do a weather prediction uh, is so, uh, immensely huge that the fact that they ever get it right. Uh, and actually like the fact that they mostly get it right. If we really look at it, like most of the time they're pretty on point, it's actually really, really impressive. 
But right. it, it seems like when they're not sure or if there's any possibility of something big happening, it's like all of a sudden there's like a special breaking news. Winter Storm Jeffrey exactly. is on the rise. And also Winter Storm Jeffrey is going to murder all your kittens. So make sure you bring the kittens inside. <laughs> Jeffrey. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why I picked the name Jeffrey. He's, but No, that's that's perfect because Jeffrey is kind of like unassuming. Like he sounds like the kind of guy you'd want to have over for tea and then he kills all your cats. Yeah, because you know, of like the it, weather. It, it sounds unassuming. You're actually right on. I'm going to sneak in an affirmation. If you really want to read an amazing chapter in a book about weather casting that will kind of change how you view things, take a look at Nate Silver's book, The Signal and the Noise. He has a whole section devoted to this. And actually what he emphasizes is interesting in that our technology to forecast weather is actually better than it's ever been before. It's actually quite substantial and quite accurate. Part of the problem with weather right now is the senseless sense... <laughs> It just, you know, do you know what I'm trying to say? I cannot Sen- say this word right now. Sensationalism. Yes, of weather, because weather is entertainment. So, like, all these reporting, like you said, where it's like, winter storm tracker. Yeah. Come see how many feet you're going to get right now. Like, all that stuff draws people in. So, like, where I live, it's always this thing where that, there's going to be a little bit of a storm. All of a sudden, it's like 60 interviews with, like, plow drivers in front of, like, giant salt hills, like, talking about what they're doing, their preparation. Yeah. And then everybody is going to the grocery store to buy enough ingredients to make French toast and pancakes for seven or eight days straight where you will definitely be able to get out of your house tomorrow. I actually think that maybe the weather sensationalism is like because of the milk and egg lobby and the bread lobby. (laughs) You mean big egg, big Big, milk, big dairy. Yeah. (laughs) Big dairy and big, big bread egg better. Big egg. Yeah. I like big egg too. It's Big Egg's fault. (laughs) Uh, Oh, this is great. All right, what are you denying? And then we should actually talk about theology. Yeah, be prepared. This is really going to be quite brief. This is a really, really lame and quite trite denial. But (laughs) for for lots of reasons, I've recently found myself in the note card market in that I need to purchase some like note cards. I haven't done this in quite some time. And so my wife was very gracious enough. She went out to places looking for note cards. One, she found it exceedingly difficult to find just note cards without the lines. Apparently that's like a request in this world. That's too great. You can only find line note card requests. So I was like, okay, that's fine. I mean, I will accept your lined note cards. (laughs) She bought me some and it, this is my issue. And again, I'm just, this is straight me being a whiner. I'm really denying against no cards that are purchased at kind of like most stores because what I found is they don't care about the card part. It's not just the note. I need the card. And so <laughs> the, what she what she brought back to me was basically note paper. Yeah. Like it was cut and looked like a card, but the card is representative of card stock in the quality and the stiffness of the paper. And so it's basically just like eight and a half by 11 standard sheets of paper that were cut into note card shapes. I was like, I can't tell you how surprised I was that how much this unnerved me and how I was just so disappointed. Like, again, this is just so trite, but that's my denial. We just need real note cards. Where are the real men? Where are the real note cards? Presumably they're both together somewhere. And so I was able to find some eventually, but I had to like purchase extra hard, (laughs) like extra hard note cards. And to me, they were just like, of standard quality, like just normal stiffness. 
We should uh, we should get Doug Wilson to write a no quarter November article <laughs> about how <laughs> the failure to have proper note cards is a sign of the declining like attitudes of men in the country and how they and then he should throw some cuss words and some like really insulting things into the article so people will read it. Uh, it so here's the thing: it could be, and from a, like a straight statistical mathematical perspective. Based on what I see out there, because I bought a couple of packages of these and they were all underwhelming with respect to their stiffness, there's going to be like a correlation that's close to one. So it's spurious, but yeah, it seems like they are highly correlated. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Get on that, Doug Wilson. Yeah. So in also, this is kind of like embedded a sneaky affirmation. I discovered that note cards are awesome and that they're, they're kind of like undervalued. They're a great tool to use for all kinds of things. Bookmarks, little note, like get rid of the post-its. Get some good note cards, but you gotta have to go on. You're gonna have to go on a little bit of a search probably to find the stuff that's like stiff enough that will withstand the kind of abuse that I'm putting my note cards through. Yeah, I have a little confession to make. So, Please. I have an addiction to stationery. <laughs> uh, like if I go into if I go into Staples, it's like okay. a bad it's like a bad situation. So this specifically in seminary came about in terms of buying note cards and then never using them. And then uh, when I would find like an open pack of note cards, like half of them would be bent because they were like in the bottom of my backpack. So I'd throw them all Uh. away and buy new note cards. And then the cycle would just repeat. Or like I have probably like 10 moleskin notebooks hanging out in my office somewhere that have like seven pages of stuff written in them. And then I like stopped using them. And then I was at, at like Staples to buy like a new chair. And I was like, you know what I need? A new moleskin notebook. <laughs> Maybe if I get the kind that's a grid instead of lines, I'll use it this time. Yeah. So, so I actually notebook note cards. Uh, it's kind of like crack for me. So, we've never spoken about this before. No. I am exactly the same way. Yeah. I, I'm like I'm feeling your heart on this because there's something to me appealing about a nice clean blank sheet of paper. Yes. So like when you, when you see, like you go into like staples, you're like, there's all these amazing pens and writing instruments and here are all these amazing things to record your thoughts on. There's something almost romantic about gathering all this stuff up and having it available to you. And I was just remarking to a friend today at church. I, I recently started a new notebook and for writing notes in the sermon, not in the sermon, but about the sermon. And I was saying that I've been trying to get better at like not buying the expensive stuff because the Molsky notebook, nothing feels better than one of those bad boys. Yeah. It's just like a beautiful thing. Get that elastic around it. It it makes you feel like you could write the next great American novel, just holding one of those things. Yeah. And so, but I was remarking that what I've been using now is just kind of like just cheap. I think it was like just given to me like some kind of standard giveaway notebook. And yet the paper quality was so good. Like my writing in it looks so awesome. So I, I totally am with you on that. My my thing with moleskin notebooks is I have this vision. So this is this comes from me being like a church history major, right? You you read about like all of the most amazing theologians and like their personal journals and like like their letters right. get published. And I'm like, you know, someday there might be like volumes of my moleskin notebooks with like my sermon notes and all my thoughts. And then what ends up happening is I write like I write the date and I'm always thinking like, oh, I'm going to jot down theological thoughts throughout the day. And like, so there's like seven pages in a row with nothing but the date written on them. <laughs> and then, and then, then that's when I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to do this. And I, I like, I throw the notebook away. And then like two months later I'm at Staples and I'm like, you know, 
I could really use a new moleskin notebook. And you know what else I need with a new moleskin notebook? I need some new pens and probably yes. a new ruler. I know I have a ruler yes. at home somewhere, but look at this ruler. This ruler is going to make all the difference in the world. I've got so many Bible rulers. I know. Um, no, no joke. Well, this has been the definitive Tony and Jesse talk about stationary for like 20 minutes podcast. See, this so, is how so, I know that we both have a problem is I'm actually like really excited. And there's a part of me that wants to like go to Staples right now. There's only two groups of people. There are those listening to this podcast and saying, this is a complete waste of my time. Get to the theology. And there are those right now that were driving somewhere and have just course corrected to the nearest staples yeah. after hearing us. There's talk. also a third category of people that realize how deeply connected what we're talking about is and theology, how those two things actually connect with each other. <laughs> that audience that's might true. just be me and you, but I think there's more. <laughs> Let us know if that's you. If, if, if you have an addiction to stationary, or staples or fancy pens or something like that, then please write us. We want to get you help. And also we want to get help. And maybe we also <laughs> want to just nerd out about stationary and pens. <laughs> and also we want to know what stuff you're using. Cause exactly. we want to get that stuff. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, let's move on if we even can at this point. <laughs> And this is an, another great episode. I'm looking forward to this because it's question cast time. It is question cast time. You can always tell when we have question cast coming up because we're a little bit less less than ordinary focused on getting to the topic, uh, which is also why our question cast episodes feel like they're going to be really like short and then they end up being like an hour and a half long because we think that we're going to go through questions fast and then we don't. So... That's where we're at. So buckle up because you got at least another hour of this podcast in front of you. <laughs> and can we just say this? Like, uh, maybe this might be helpful by way of disclosure is I know sometimes we get some feedback from people. They like to hear a little bit about more of just like uh, our personalities and our lives uh, because so that they don't think we're just like theological automatons that are just, you know, always talking about theology, even though that, that really does in fact, encapsulated a lot of our lives. So I'd be curious for more feedback on that because this has been a rather extended version of affirmations and denials, but it is more effective or not more effective, but it is who we are. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I love how so you let's felt do some like questions. you had to give an apology for our content. <laughs> <laughs> Always be prepared to give a defense of your content, I guess. <laughs> so, so yeah, now I'm feeling like we should just scrap this and start over. I didn't <laughs> see that that's what I was doing when I started, but now that you called me out, I totally agree that I basically just apologize for who we were. So I rescind said apology. <laughs> that's all good. Why don't we, uh, why don't we course correct ourselves here and just get on to the first question? <laughs> yes. Please. All right. Here's the first one. Hey, Tony and Jesse. This is Sean calling from Orlando, Florida. Uh, got a question for you guys. I was wondering your thoughts on um, to what extent church government is a result of the fall or asked differently uh, what aspects of church government and church structure do you think uh, will continue in the new heavens and new earth? Um, thinking specifically of things like the role of deacon being established in the book of Acts and whether that would be something that would continue, uh, whereas, you know, priestly roles being present in the garden before the fall. So just interested in your thoughts. Thanks. Bye. 
So Sean asked what I think is a really unique and thoughtful question, something that actually has never come across my mind explicitly, but I think there's a lot of good meat here to chew on. Yeah. So if I did distill it down, what he's basically asking is, is church government the result of the fall? And what elements of church government will persist in the new heaven and the new earth? And I've been thinking about this a little bit. And here's the thing about church government. I, I know that actually from your background and your convictions in particular, there's a, a strong fidelity to some sense of church government. And what I actually admire about that is that I think that's how everybody should approach it, that the Bible has something to say, though there are many forms that have been adopted through time, that I would say that the Bible allows for kind of a dispersed or democratized endorsement of different forms of church government. But here's the bottom line. I think whether somebody wants to admit it or not, they have some kind of notion about how the church should be governed, about who should make the decisions, what procedures should be followed, and what kind of authority characterizes those decisions and procedures. So when I think about church government, I'm thinking about something that answers questions like, who determines how the church's contributions should be spent? Who's going to preach on Sunday? Is that a man or is that a woman? Is it either or? What should we expect in his or her preaching? What does the church pursue? How does the church pursue reconciliation between offended brothers and sisters? How are disputes between disagreeing parties resolved? Who is going to administer baptism? So people, I think, often claim without much reflection that church government is really a relatively trivial matter. It's not something over which loving Christians should really worry or argue. But on the other hand, if you actually take a hard look around at what actually happens in various churches, I think what you'll notice is that mo the most prevalent reason why people get upset and leave a congregation is not really because of doctrinal differences. It's often tied in one fashion or another to the way that the congregation is governed or disciplined or, or a lack of discipline. Right. And so because many churches have not heeded the scriptures, I think, with respect to government and discipline, the history of the Christian church reveals abuses and disappointments, disappointments in the administration of church affairs from either despotic unity or democratic chaos. So I guess that's a really roundabout way of saying I really affirm this question because I think there is something here for us to think about. So what are your, let's start with the first part. What are your initial thoughts on church government as a result of the fall? Yay or nay? Well, so this is one of those questions, you know, like most questions in theology, in one sense, the answer is yes. And in one sense, the answer is no. So right on. let's start with the answer is no. So I don't usually get a lot of lead time on these questions from you, which is fine. That's true. <laughs> but I had a couple hours to think about this. And this is actually a question I thought about before. And I, I absolutely agree that church, uh, church governance, church polity is really something that the, the, the Christian church and especially people in the congregations, the, the lay people in the congregations need to think more about. And if you actually read like most systematic theology books, there's really not a lot of discussion about church government in most systematic theology books. Um, you know, church, church theology books that are coming from a really particular, um, like confessional or dogmatic perspective tend to explain their own church government. And they, that they also tend kind of in contrast to explain other church governments. But if you read like Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, which Wayne Grudem doesn't really have much of a church polity in, in like a strict sense. Um, he doesn't cover it in any real depth. Um, right. And so I think because the systematic theology that most people in reformed kind of layperson world, go to don't address this. They don't think or don't feel like it's important, but it really is. And so 
on one level, church government is a necessary uh, result of the fact that there's a church. Because if there's a church, that church has to be governed in some way and not governed in terms of like ruled over, although that's a, an element of it. But just the fact that the church exists means that the church has to exist. Like you can't get away from the existence and the operation of the church. And if the church is operating, then in, in a very real sense, it's being governed some way or somehow. Even anarchy is a form of government. Right. Right. So if you go back um, all the way back to prior to the fall, since this question is about the fall, um, going to Genesis chapter two, starting in verse five, it says, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, the Lord God had not caused the rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. Uh, and the mist was going up from the ground and the land was watering the whole face of the earth. And then the Lord God formed the man from dust out of the ground and breathed into his nostrils and the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And then jumping down to verse 15, it says, the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and to keep it. And so those, those words work and keep uh, the other places in scripture where they they show up next to each other like that is in reference to the language that the priests were given, the task that the priests were given in reference to the temple. And so uh, Greg Beal has done all sorts of fabulous work on Eden being a garden temple, like the, the temple imagery. But, but the right. point I'm making is that the task of Adam in the garden was essentially the same task that the priests were given in relation to the temple, the priests and the Levites. And so then as we go on, and now we introduce the woman later in the chapter, the reformed tradition has almost unequivocally held that Adam and Eve together worshiping God constitute the first church. And Adam was the first king and priest of the church. So he, he was the king and priest of that church. He was God's regent. God had appointed him to govern and rule over all creation and especially the garden and especially over his wife and those that they would produce as their children. And so if, if we have the church in um, the, the garden, if we have the church before the fall, which we say we do, we agree we do, and Adam is given a task to rule over the church as the federal covenant head and the progenitor of all of humanity, then there's a church government, right? right? Adam was called to be the high priest king of the church in the garden. And had he persisted, and this is going to be a little controversial because there are some in the reformed world who hold kind of an incarnation anyway view. And I used to hold that myself, but had Adam persisted, Adam would have been enthroned as the ruler of humanity in God's presence. So, so in a very real sense, the, the seat that Christ sits on as the incarnate Lord, Adam would have filled a similar function in being the eschatological ruler of humanity in the presence of God. Adam would have been the king and priest over God's people for all future eternity had he passed his probation. That's part of the part right. of Adam's personal eschatology, which was not actualized, was that he would have been advanced to a state of permanence in which he was the federal head and ruler who obtained the merit for permanent righteousness for all of his progen all of his progeny. Right. So in the garden prior to the fall, even though it's a very different kind of church government than what we think about after the fall, there is a church, there's someone, a human that's ruling over that church or was supposed to be ruling over that church. And so prior to the fall, there definitely was a church government. Now, after the fall, church government looks very different. 
So I, I'm not going to say, although I know there are some people that actually would say this would have eventually developed. I don't believe that like a uh, non-fallen church government would have been Presbyterian, right? Or congregational, right? Like all of the different kinds of uh, church government models that we have that I believe, I believe that the Presbyterian model is prescribed in scripture, uh, both by example and by command, but there's good arguments for other, other forms of government. There's good arguments uh, to say that uh, there is no one prescribed form of church government. There's good arguments for all of that. But I don't think any of those situations would have happened if the fall had not happened. But that doesn't mean there wasn't a church government prior to the fall. Right. And that's a good point, because I think if I had to guess what's actually behind this particular question in the subtext is more speaking about the administration right. of the church government right. is the way that we see it administered now uniquely characteristic of the fall. And I think there's some good tuition there, because when I look at church government in our modern era, because what's interesting is is kind of considering what you just said, we're talking about like a counterfactual world that doesn't actually exist. Right. So there was church government writ large. The way in which it's been administered to us in the New Testament era is completely different than what we've just been talking about. So I, what I see this as, I think church government is really the solution in this side of sin, so to speak, of the principal agent problem. So of course, when you speak of principles, those are somebody, an organization or entity, a person who has control or ownership over something. Right. And the agent is the person that acts on their behalf, that uses the resources, and they're supposed to use the resources for the benefit of the principal. And so Jesus even uses this example when he speaks about the vineyard, he uses that as a parable. And he says he, he puts these, these people are put in charge of the vineyard, and then instead of, again, being good agents and using it for the benefit of the principal, paying restitution for the use of the land and whatnot, uh, they abuse it, and when the principal tries to send you know, his emissaries, his representatives, they kill them, and it escalates to an extreme degree. So I think church government nowadays, what we have is largely, as we see it in its manifestation and administration, it's, it is a result of the fall, because here we have a method by which godly practicality is brought to bear on sinful agents. So how does Christ direct and govern his church? Obviously, he's not bodily present to make decisions and give audible guidance. And even beyond that, special divine revelation is not provided every time we wish to visit the sick or resolve a dispute or determine questions of doctrine or by a light bulb for the church office. So there must be a method, I think, by which God in his graciousness provides some kind of guidance and I don't want to say like fences everything in, so to speak. And so we see like, I, this is where I'm, I'm kind of erring on the side of, I would say mostly as we understand it, I would answer this question as yes, result of the fall, not writ large, but again, it's application because Christ is directing his church to the scriptures, which is his own self-revelation and authoritative guidance. So historically speaking, if you want to try to bring some empirical evidence to bear on, on my, my answer in that direction, during the early history of the church, for example, you know, Luke found it relevant to relate that the money contributed to the church was under the control of its overseers. He talks about that in Acts 4. In Acts 15, you have Luke going further and recording a significant account of how the early church resolved a doctrinal dispute by convening a general assembly of its elders right. and then authoritatively publishing their decision for the whole church. And then even the author of Hebrews made this explicit point of exhorting the believers to submit to the authority of their leaders as those who watch for their souls. So, I think there's a history here, all that to say, I think a large part of God in his goodness provides this church government to give us some kind of guidance to move us forward because unfortunately we are sinful agents. So this principal agent problem persists 
all over our world, but especially in the church, and the church is the one place where there should be some kind of explicit guidelines to hem us in a direction that is godly and Godward focused with respect to how we deal with each other and how we administer the, even like the logistical underpinnings and procedures of the church itself. Yeah. Yeah. Now, before we move on to this next part of the question, which I think is a really great question, you know, it bears, it bears saying the, the, the reality or the fact of authority and specifically derived authority or delegated authority from God to the creature, that is not a post-fall development, right? Right. So Adam was created and given dominion over the creatures. And we talked about it. We did that episode on complementarianism. I would also say, although in a different sense and in a different way, Adam is also given authority over Eve, his wife, and would have had they had children in the garden, would have also had authority over um, their children. And and the principle, obviously not to excuse the pun, the principle behind that authority is that principle of generation, right? Adam has authority over Eve in that immediate sense, in light of the fact that she was taken from his side and created out of him, right? Paul picks up on that in, I think it's in Timothy, but also I think in Corinthians, he picks up on that, that man was made from, or woman was made from the man. And that in part justifies why Adam had authority over Eve and thus why by extension, men have a certain kind of authority over their wives. And then the same principle in a different sense extends and explains why men and women have authority over the children that they together produce. So this, this idea that God delegated to the creature, to the, the, the first Adam, and, and you'll see where I'm going with this by that language, the, the principle that God delegated church ecclesiastical authority to the first Adam, that extends into the current age, that that, that ecclesiastical authority was delegated to the second Adam, right? As, as the second Adam, as the incarnate God, man, as man, Christ has authority over the church, right? God has authority over all things in light of his nature as God. And that that's the same for the father, the son, and the spirit. But Christ as man, Christ, according to humanity has a special kind of authority over the church predominantly because the church comes from him and because he has been given authority and obtained authority over the church as their federal head in the same exact sense that Adam would have had authority over the church as their as the federal head had he succeeded in his probation right so that right. first second adam uh, parallelism extends into the current age and here's the kicker that means it also extends into the age to come, right? In scripture, that sometimes they talk about three stages of history. Sometimes they talk about two. Generally speaking, when they talk about three stages, they think about from Adam to Noah, from Noah to Christ, and then from Christ to eternity. And so we're in the first part of that last stage of Christ's, of the, the latter age or the later days. When it talks about the two stages of history, Paul uses this language a lot more. Peter does a little bit too. There's there's the prior to Christ, the former days, and then there's the later days. But no matter how you slice it up, eschatologically, Christ as the risen God-man, as the second Adam, according to humanity, will rule over the church for all eternity. 
in the same sense, there's a reason it's called the throne of David, right? Christ sits on David's throne because David's throne was a type of the eternal reign of the son of David. That was not just because he was God, but because he was the man who brought about the redemption of the church. And so that, that kind of church government at a very minimum we still will have a man, a human person ruling and reigning over the church as the high priest king and prophet for all eternity. So yes, there's an element of church government in the new heavens and the new earth. Now I take the position um, that I actually think that elements of how we govern the church now in terms of my perspective, the Presbyterian model of the church, I actually think that some of that will persist into the new kingdom because I, I think that, you know, Re- Revelation, although it's highly a highly symbolic book, still uses the language of elders. It still uses the language right. of talking about the nations. Like there's still these human subgroupings that exist in the book of Revelation that I don't think would have necessarily happened had the fall not occurred, but I also don't necessarily think are sinful in and of themselves. And so I do think that some of those will persist into the new creation. I completely agree. There's something here that God has ordained with respect to church governance that is super Jason. It transcends time. It transcends even sin itself in the sense that it existed for all of creation and would have continued to exist. Like you said, had Adam and himself not fallen. But what's interesting here is, and you're right, this is like the classic yes, no answer that at the same time there, it was almost like a shift. There was an inflection point in the role that church governance needed to take. So even at the very beginning here, you have all of this church governance and it's, it's almost as if, well, if it, there's a component embedded in this church government plan, there is something that would attend to sin, would attend to discipline if necessary and needed. And of course, that was what needed to be invoked because sin entered the world. And so again, when we think about church government, at least I, when I think about it, my first thoughts automatically move toward the direction of things like discipline, false teaching, and working through problems right. and procedures. And that is the role of it in some sense, but it's also far bigger than just those things. So that means then that it will likely persist in the new heavens and the new earth because it was created and it existed in a period in time in a realm where there was only perfection. And so by virtue of that fact, it's not as this, this came in to fill a gap. It was always part of God's perfect plan. And so it will persist. But the part of it that's like, we don't enjoy all that much. The part of thinking about how we need to handle all these different human affairs. Yeah. That will, of course, that portion will likely, well, will definitely go away and I'll be glad for it too. Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes because like you were saying earlier, because our, models of government are so um, oriented towards restraining and checking the effects of sin, right? Even even you think about like secular government, the role of the right. government is to restrain evil, to restrain evildoers, to structure society in a way that conforms with a moral principle. Um, you know, our current society is all out of whack because the moral principle that they're trying to conform the society to is faulty. But the the purpose of government is, in a real sense, to conform a society to a given moral principle, primarily through punishing that which falls outside of that moral principle. And so we we think about government in relation to that reality of, of forming and formulating and punishing wrongdoing and conforming to a moral principle. We lose sight of the fact that 
there's nothing that has to say that that activity of conforming someone to a moral principle has to be a response to sin, right? If, right. if um, I don't have children, you don't have children, but it, you know, if a father uh, is trying to conform their child to a given set of moral principles and that child never violates those moral principles, that doesn't change the fact that the father is still tasked with shaping and guiding that child. Exactly. You know, a, a father teaches his son, don't steal, don't, don't fight unnecessarily. Don't, uh, don't lie. Don't hurt people. The fact is that some kids, I mean, every kid will lie and every kid will hurt someone, but some kids never, rebel in that sense. They never steal anything. They never shoplift. They never intentionally get in a fist fight. Like some kids just don't do that. Not because they're not sinful, but the fact that the father is not correcting that behavior does not mean that he's not shaping and forming that behavior. And so I think actually in, in, in the situation, if the fall had never happened, the role of Adam still would have been to form and drive and shape his uh, his progeny and the church in that direction and to, right. to conform the church to the image that God had established for what he desired it to be. And prior following the eschaton in the, in the new heavens and the new earth, there will still be an element where the purpose of the church is to conform its people more and more into the image of Christ. We're never fully, we're going to be made perfect in holiness, but there's still going to be this element that the church exists to establish these boundaries and the fact that we no longer will be pushing against those boundaries the way we are now doesn't change the fact that that's still in part the purpose of the church. Well, this is what sin does, right? It, what it does is it requires and shifts a disproportionate amount of our resources toward remediation. And so what I think what we're saying is embedded or impounded in church governance is the ability to handle those types of things, to deal with those types of things. But we, we, what we'd rather have is the kind of leadership that brings that kind of moral formation. That's a result of a regenerated heart where resources do not need to be consumed right. in trying to kind of push forward some kind of agenda that is against our nature. And so church governance is large enough and power enough by the grace of God to handle those types of things, to provide that kind of framework, but it exists outside of the need for that kind of framework. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that that is definitely the case. I mean, I, th I think I we really can say, thought, go ahead. I really thought you were going to say, I really think that is the definitive answer. <laughs> it, it passed <laughs> through my mind. That's why I paused. <laughs> what were you going to say? I would say, like, I just think that we we should recognize that the church, the function of the church, the purpose of the church, is not a response to sin. Yes, um, agreed. The fact that we exist within sin makes it so certain elements of the church have to be different. But the yes, function exactly. and purpose of the church is not a reaction to sin, and thus church government necessarily existing because the church exists is also not intrinsically tied to the presence of sin or the reality of sin. And we should say that because we understand God to be one of meticulous order, not of chaos, that it makes sense that even in the perfect world that he created, there would be an order for this type of thing. And that right. that order for the church, for the bringing together of God's people, for their instruction would be manifest in some way. And that title would be under 
church governance. Right. So I, I just think that we have, or maybe I'm just speaking for myself, there is like a cognitive bias to, to interpreting the word governance as something that's necessary and required because something else has gone wrong. And so we need to correct it. Whereas what we're saying here is that this preceded that whole idea and that concept. There would still be leadership and accountability and hierarchy and avenues of respect and guidance that would be totally necessary and appropriate even outside of sin. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't we move on to the next question? Why? Because that was definitive. That was definitive. (laughs) All right. Next question. Good morning, brothers. This is Dave from St. Louis. I'd like you to answer the question. I'd like you to explain the difference between iniquity, sin, and transgression. Thank you. So I believe Brother Dave has the record for the most succinct question that has ever been asked on our podcast. This is just a bare 19 seconds of question. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. It's like blink and and you miss it. (laughs) Yeah. You might need to go back and hear it again. And he's given us just three words. And for that reason, I love this question because what it has in brevity, I think it also has with the extent to, it can be an answer that's broad as well. And so He's got, he's asking about iniquity, sin, and transgression. So in knowing that we were going to talk about this, I went and looked these up real quick in the Oxford English Dictionary, which again, as I've affirmed before, has an excellent app for your, your mobile device, which you should check out. So let me throw for you, Tony, the definitions at you so we can get a sense for both the scope of these words, but also how, if you just look them up, how they tend to overlap a bit. So here's iniquity. Iniquity is immoral or grossly unfair behavior. Here's how the OED defines sin. Sin is an immoral act considered to be a transgression against divine law, an act regarded as a serious or regrettable fault, offense, or omission. And lastly, transgression is an act that goes against a law, rule, conduct, or an offense. So let's start with, let's talk a little bit about not just how the dictionary defines these terms, but how we see them Spar- interspersed in, in related in scripture. Yeah. I mean, on one level, sometimes we can get a little too uh, wrapped up in parsing out every word. So sometimes people will get super, super jazzed up about the fact that these three words are used and they will draw really firm, hard distinctions and make whole theological points on the basis of a difference between the word sin and the word iniquity. And while there is a certain, there's certain shades of meaning, all of these words exist within the same semantic range. They're all commenting on the same thing. And it's, I think it's question 14 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is sin? Sin is any want of conformity or transgression of the law of God. So on a certain level, all of these words mean the same thing. They're all talking about different various shades of meaning of ways that you violate the law of God, which is uh, a sin. So all transgressions are sins. All iniquity is sin. In a certain level, all sin is a transgression. All sin is an iniquity. But there are different variations and shades of meaning. So the word sin tends to be broader, right? It's more of a catch-all term. It it refers to, as the catechism says, any, any lack of conformity or any positive a positive violation of the law, like positive meaning like an active violation of the law. So it means you you don't live up to the the uh, expectations of the law or you violate an expectation of the law, right? It's not enough to not just um, desire 
uh, it's not enough to not just actually not steal. That would be a transgression of the law. That would be a positive right. violation of the law. Right. But actually not desiring to steal, that would be a lack of conformity to the law. Because the desire not to steal or the, the prohibition against stealing not only includes not actually stealing, but it also involves being satisfied with the goods you have and not being envious of the goods of your neighbor. So, so that's kind of sin is a more broad term that really kind of covers all of them. Um, iniquity, you know, there's different ways to look at it in the scripture. Iniquity tends to be more of an intentional thing, like a premeditated thing Right. to, to live in iniquity is to live a life where you're actively intentionally violating God's law in a sense that you're plotting against holiness. You're plotting against your own sanctification in a sense. So an example of that might be someone who, um, who has plans to uh, commit adultery, right? They, they're, they're thinking about how they're going to do it, how they're not going to get caught, how they're going to put themselves in the right situations, how they're going to um, cover their tracks. That's iniquity. It's a, it's a high-handed, intentional, uh, premeditated, and usually habitual violation of God's law. Right. Um, and then transgression has more to do with that positive violation. It's a further clarification on sin that a transgression is when you violate a known standard. So right. um, if I'm driving down the road and there's no speed limit sign, which is very common in kind of rural New Hampshire, there's no speed limit sign and I'm doing 40 and the cop pulls me over and says, you were doing 40 and a 30. It's not going to bear. It's not going to do me any good to say, I didn't know that the speed limit was 30. He's going to say, ignorance of the law is not an excuse to break the law. But right. that is not the same thing. And in a lot of cases, you're going to get more leniency from the court in a situation than that, like that, than if you're driving down the road that has 30 mile speed limit signs posted every, every half mile and you're doing 40, that's a different situation. That would be a transgression of the law rather than a, a, a almost like an innocent, and I don't mean like you're innocent, but an innocent violation of an unknown standard. That's right. still a sin. It's still a sin to violate the law of God. But if you're not aware of the law of God, it's not quite the same as calling it a, tra a tra uh, transgression. Right. Uh, yeah, I'm with you on that. I think that what I realized in thinking about this question is that I do tend to actually parse these words in slightly subtle ways, even though I don't often express them explicitly with different definitions. So even if you just take these in our own language, right. the part of the word can only be used in certain ways. So for instance, I often think of sin. I think the Bible describes this as something reflective of our essence or nature. And so it is permeating. It is, a, right. it is descriptive. It is a verb as well. Of course, you can sin, but it's used explicitly in many ways to describe the content and nature of our being. When you get to words like transgression, you can, of course, transgress. And so I think what you have here is this manifestation of sin in its nature, the outward working of that being going against or committing an offense against God's law. And transgression is the perfect word to describe sin in action. And then, of course, when you get to iniquity, you have, I think, something that's another descriptor. Of course, you can uh, commit iniquity, but you can't like iniquitize, if that's a verb. Like, <laughs> you, it, we're basically describing, like you said, this sense again of coming against God in disobedience, coming against some kind of standard. And it's not only that you're coming against the standard, it's that the perversion of your inner being is what promulgates or pushes you toward 
disobedience against some kind of standard. And what I think is interesting is the Bible is brilliant because each of these words, again, like taking a jewel and turning it over in your hands and looking at it from different angles and directions, each of these words allows us to do that and understand something about the natural man outside of God. For me, they all coalesce around the concept of ungodliness. Yeah. That's where they find their unification because the Bible talks of the ungodly as those who are separated from God. Ungodliness is the condition of being polluted with sin. It is the outworking, which results in transgression. It is best described by iniquity. Yeah. And so to be ungodly is to act in a way that is contrary to the nature of God, to actively oppose God in disobedience or to have in a reverent disregard for God. And so, of course, the Bible is often speaking about the flesh as a synonym for many of those things in reference to things that emanate from our sinful or iniquitous natures. And so the acts of the flesh and desires of the world fall all under this category of ungodliness. So here's something that, again, I love because the Bible does exceedingly well. It brings coalescence, but there is diversity in the unification of these terms, yeah. if that makes sense. So we're seeing like the comprehensive nature of what it means to be human outside of God. It, that is to say, here we have a complete picture of just how depraved we are, that we are sinful, that we are found in iniquity, and that we transgress God's law. And while they all, like you said, mean something in the same semantic universe, they all sufficiently point to subtly, subtly different explanations of what it means to be sinful that's worthwhile and beautiful that the scripture can delineate them and bring that diagnosis to us. So it's not just like going to the doctor and like, you know, being sick and saying, yeah, I don't know. Something's definitely wrong with you. I don't know what it is. Here we have these kind of specific entry points by which God is bringing conviction. The scriptures are that mirror that's holding us up and allowing us to see a crystal clear image. And yet, you know, we're turning and I'm looking at my profile and I'm seeing transgression. I'm looking at my face front on. I'm seeing iniquity. I'm looking to the side and seeing sin. And all those things are different. And yet they are all the same wrapped up in ungodliness. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I think sometimes too, just like we sometimes overly parse out these words, sometimes we also forget that like these are just three of the ways that the Bible describes this opposition of the man's flesh to God, right? Yes. So the Bible also talks about ungodliness, unfaithfulness, um, right. lawlessness, unrighteousness, unholiness, corruption, um, you know, the, 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 the language of death sometimes is associated with sin, um, unbelieving, uh, anti-Christ, like all of these different phrases in, in very real senses refer to this same concept of living according to the flesh. And by that, we mean living according to the principle of opposition to God. Right. Yes. So Paul uses the word flesh, other biblical writers use other words, but, but the, the concept of the opposition to God, right? I actually, if, if I were to sum up and say like, what's the, the chief attribute of sin, I would say it's lawlessness, but, but that's not really all that different from saying ungodliness, right? right. Um, I was actually reading Herman Witsius this morning and he has this big, this long section in the beginning of um, the economy of the covenants between God and man, where he actually talks about the sort of like incoherence of the idea of, of the universe not having law, of rational creatures not having law, because he, he says um, it would be incon inconceivable for God to order a universe 
in which he was not to be praised or obeyed. And so exactly. the, even the idea of God commanding the creature not to obey him is an incoherency. So this concept of law is built into the nature of reality. And strictly speaking, what, what man has is knowledge of the law. And so the, the lawlessness, I think it's in first John where he says sin is lawlessness. That's really saying like sin is any opposition to, to the law of God, which you could boil down and say sin is any opposition to God himself to the reality right. of who God is and any challenge to his sovereignty and authority, whether that's a challenge in the form of violating the natural law or a challenge in the form of violating the positive law that God has given us, the additional uh, laws that go beyond the law of nature, any violation or transgression of God's law is an, is an opposition or as uh, R.C. Sproul used to put it, is an, is an act of cosmic treason against the sovereign of the universe. And so right while on. there are these different various shades of meaning, and there are a lot more words in the Bible used to describe sin than just these three, it's also true that when you really boil it down, all of those words are getting at the reality that God is God and therefore he is the sovereign. He's the Lord and we owe him obedience. I mean, that's, uh, I don't remember where in the catechism it's in the forties, probably the fifties. It talks about the preface to the 10 commandments and what the preface to the 10 commandments teaches us. And what the preface to the 10 commandments teaches us is that because, uh, because God is the Lord and our God and our redeemer that we are bound to keep all of his commandments. But you could, right. you could cut out that redeemer part and it would still be true because the Lord is God. We are bound to keep all of his commandments. So that's really what it gets at. So on one sense, this is another one of those yes or no questions. Yes. And no questions. What's the difference between iniquity, sin and transgression in reality? Like there isn't one like they're, they're all pointing at the same thing. But then there are also these shades of meaning that we we can really get some good fruits from, some good facets to the diamond, uh, if we really look at how the scripture uses the terms differently. What I appreciate about this question is it draws our minds in that direction because there can be a time where we just kind of think of these all as purely synonymous. Right. And the question is giving us pause to consider, well, are they different? And why is then the Bible using so many different words when it could have just used one? And I think at the very least, what this points to is just the amazing depravity and the ubiquity of the human condition, that one word was not sufficient. They were one right. to express some kind of differentiation while at the same time drawing together this overwhelming sense that it is so bad, you know, that, that really we are awful people and that we needed a savior who could overcome all of these words yeah. in all of their nuance. And then in addition, in the way in which they're all brought together. And so it's a good reminder that Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. Right. And so I figured that the best way for us to kind of end probably our, our conversation, and especially this question, because I know Brother Dave wasn't trying to like just put us on a downer note here, but this is a great question. I want to read just a couple of verses from Romans chapter eight, because amazingly, and this is amazing, Jesus sacrificed himself for all of these words that we've just used for the glory of God and for our good. And this is what Romans 8, 6 through 11 says. For a while we were still weak at just the right time. Yeah. Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one might even dare to die. Yeah. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good word. That's all I got. Was it the definitive word? It, well, it's the scripture. So yes, it is. the. <laughs> it actually legitimately is the definitive word. Uh, we've finally done it. Yes. Well, we've done it before, just not that way. I guess so. God's done it all. It's true. So Jesse, I love question cast, but we have to bring this to a close. Uh, I'm just we not going to ask you because you don't know it anymore. But if you want to get in <laughs> on the next question cast, you can call and leave us a voicemail at 607-444-2767, which spells bros. out bros. Uh, or you can email us at info at reformbrotherhood.com. Uh, we do take email questions. Uh, we do take some questions through Facebook, although I'm not great at checking Facebook. So sorry to that person who got the automated response that said, we'll be with you in a few minutes. And then I messaged them back three and a half months later. My bad. <laughs> wow. But uh, you can leave us questions there. You can send it through Twitter if you'd like. We really have a bunch of different venues to get a hold of us. And... We have some sweet Reformed Brotherhood gear. If you head over to uh, confessionalware.com, you can look for the podcast uh, podcast collaborations on the left. You can get some sweet Reformed Brotherhood gear. Uh, you can get some sweet Reformed Pilgrims gear. Uh, there's just lots of cool stuff up there. And it supports a guy who, who has been so generous with his time uh, and his energy and his money with the show. Uh, it supports a guy to shop through there. You get some great shirts, uh, some great gear, and uh, you can support the show a little bit too. And we're coming up on that time of year that is somewhat controversial, but it is often that time of year where maybe for no good reason you're thinking, you know what, I'd like to buy all of my loved ones some type of gift and maybe present that gift at a unified time in December on the calendar. Yes. If you're thinking that way, confessionalware.com is a great place to go. It's Grab true. a couple of wonderful gifts. We've got mugs. We've got, is the beer stein still available? It is. It will be available. I'm making an executive decision. It will be available until December 15th. Wow. That was like a really specific date. Yeah. I was going to say November 30th and I realized that only be like two days after this episode comes out. So <laughs> December 15th, Reform Brotherhood beer stein is going away forever. 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 So you're going to want to check that out. There's t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, all kind. There's no stationery because Tony and I would buy it all. It's true. And that wouldn't be any good. But this is a great kind of thing when you, in all seriousness, when you purchase something from confessionalware.com that is related to the podcast, not only does that support the proprietor of that particular website, but a portion of it does go to help our ministry here. And we're ever so grateful for that. So if you're looking, you'd like to purchase a little something and you'd like some of that to go toward us, we are super grateful and we hope that you'll enjoy the beer stein because it's a 22 ounce people. 22 and ceramic, legit German style beer stein. Yeah. It's a thing of beauty. Your heart will be merry by the time you're done with that beer. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how your heart could be not merry looking at that thing. It's a thing of beauty. But if it's not, it will be merry by the time you finish 22 ounces. Uh, and if that's not your thing, there's a really equally beautiful mug that I have. 15 ounce coffee mug. 
and it, you probably want to get it now because it's one of the last versions of the logo where I'm wearing a shirt. So yeah. you're definitely going to pick that up. Yeah, you can drink beer out of a coffee mug too if you just need something a little smaller. Can you? Is I mean, it allowed? Yeah, I mean, a beer stein is like a beer mug. It's like just bigger. That, yeah, that's, that's true. true. <laughs> factually correct. That was factually correct. Well, this has been great. I love chatting about these questions. So thank you for all who continue to call and leave voicemails. All your voicemails get to us. So be patient with us uh, as we go through them. We're making our way through the backlog. But continue to call in and we will keep discussing them. You can't stop, won't stop. It's true. It's yeah. true. So, uh, uh, Tony, this is it. We got to shut this thing down because otherwise I'm going to start talking to you about gel pens. So until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. What if I'm part of-